Libby writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up on a Friday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning into the Rippy Writes podcast powered by Twisted Tea. Today, we're going to go through some solo Texas A&M thoughts, and then we have former Ole Miss great C.J. Johnson, who joined us before his current team. He's the co-defensive coordinator at Holmes, played a game on Thursday night. We talked about his career at Ole Miss coming up at the last year of the nut era, transitioning to the freeze era, some how much fun it was playing on the 2014-2015 defenses, his move to middle linebacker, life after football, and a whole lot more. So buckle up. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, I want to take a quick break to remind you. This podcast is brought to you by Seaspire. Time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with Seaspire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable home internet connection for you and your family. That's why Seaspire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. Seaspire also prides themselves with best customer service in the home internet market. Their customer service is award-winning, local, based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. Seaspire provides 1 gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and southern Alabama regions. Seaspire is also proud to announce the release of their brand new 2 gigabit and 8 gigabit home internet plans. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Call or go online to cspire.com slash home today and use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and you'll get one month of free service. So you get a free month of internet service and the best internet service in the market just for listening to this podcast. How about that? Check them out. Seaspire, customer inspired. This podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked that the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. If you're a Skybox member, you went 11-4 and four on NFL picks over the weekend, plus 8.5 units. Some of you out there who didn't use Skybox, probably hurting in the wallet, probably hurting in the old Venmo account, having to pay the man. You should sign up to Skybox Sports Picks today. Go online, find a picks package within your price range. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can try NFL. You can try college. You can try all the sports. I recommend going with a year-long all-access pass because you will make every year a profitable one with Skybox. You don't want to lose money this football season. Maybe we're a month and a half into this. Maybe you're already in a little bit of a hole. Use Skybox to help you pull out of it. They are the professionals. Their picks are based on data and modeling, not leans five minutes before kickoff. They'll send you picks in a nice color-coded spreadsheet, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were before signing up for Skybox. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off any purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Before we get to CJ Johnson, wanted to run through some quick solo AM thoughts to get you prepped for the game a little bit, or at least enlighten you on what I'm thinking about heading into this game. This is a massive game for both teams. There's no getting around that, but for wildly different reasons. Let's start with the old miss side of it. You have the obvious. If you win this game, you are entering the second week of November as a one-loss team with a free shot to go play Georgia and Athens with the chance to keep your college football playoff hopes alive. Yes, they still have a very rapidly diminishing chance of winning the SEC West, but technically still a hope for that as well. All but dashed with the loss in this game as well. But from a program standpoint, Ole Miss has never really been in that position before. They haven't really ever been a one-loss team with a chance at the college football playoff deep into November. Really the only other time it happened was in 2014. Of course, Ole Miss enters the Auburn game with one loss. I think that game was actually literally on November 1st. They lose that game. Their college football playoff hopes are shot. So this is really, with each win and each week, more and more rarefied air for Ole Miss, Lane Kiffin, and this program. And, you know, 
then you get a week of everyone talking about the matchup against Georgia and does Ole Miss have a shot? And my God, if they had actually went over there and pulled it off, then you're having a totally different conversation. You know, we talked about the whole running the table, one loss playoff conversation. We've alluded it to it on the podcast a little bit. Mostly it's just a fun exercise while acknowledging that the conversation is premature. Well, if you win this game, it's the conversation is no longer premature. Would I necessarily count on Ole Miss going over to Georgia in Athens and winning? No, but they're there and they'll have a shot to do it. And that's what a win over Texas A&M in this game would mean. It would give yourself a chance and it would put you, you know, later at any point in the season, they've been with one loss with their college football playoff hopes alive. A&M, totally different story. One of the most talented teams in college football that continuously just doesn't get it right on the field, right? Tale as old as time with Jimbo Fisher. Felt like we've been talking about this since really the post-COVID season of why can't this team get right? Um, Lane Kiffin, if you listen to his press conference on Monday, um, made it very, very clear his thoughts about AM's talent versus their results. Uh, if you played a drinking game of how many times Lane Kiffin said the players the AM has, quote, collected, I think he used that word um, on purpose rather than recruit or gotten or built or whatever the hell you want to call it. He kept saying collected. If he had played a drinking game, how many times he said that, you'd probably pass out by the end of the press conference. But he was very clearly taking a little bit of a dig at Jimbo while admiring the talent that this coaching staff has assembled, or as he put it, again, collected versus the results. I think he even threw a shot in there about Jimbo Fisher saying their goal was to get the bowl eligibility. I think it's pretty clear. Lane Kiffin, not a huge fan of Jimbo Fisher. You know, there's a couple other coaches across the league that I could probably speculate that Lane Kiffin is not the biggest fan of, but this one's different. It almost seems like an annoyance that he looks at all the resources that Jimbo has, the talent that they've assembled or collected. And I think he's more just annoyed by the incompetence. I think he probably thinks in some ways, you know, if I had that talent, I'm speaking for Lane Kiffin here. And of course, just completely speculating here, but I, it seems like he views it from the standpoint of if I had that talent, we sure as hell wouldn't be five and three, but this guy can't get it together. It's almost like an annoyance of the sheer incompetence of how Jimbo Fisher runs his program because he kept talking over and over again about the talent on the AM roster. I think he even called it close to an NFL roster and said they could very easily be a top five team. Also the fact that they're not and the reasons for that. So this for AM is a game, a chance to get right. They're five and three. If they somehow come into Oxford and win, which is not unrealistic at all, they'd be six and three with games against Mississippi State, Abilene Christian, and LSU left. And certainly, if they win this game as bad as it's been early in the season for the Aggies, that's at least a path to go nine and three. I don't necessarily think they'll go over Thanksgiving weekend and win at LSU, but how they beat LSU at home last year, nobody thought they would do that as well. So all in all, are they paying Jimbo Fisher to go nine and three? No, of course they're not, but it's not the disastrous seasons that would ultimately lead to Jimbo Fisher getting fired or his seat getting increasingly hotter. So this is a really crucial swing game for the Aggies in terms of the total outlook of their season. And really in a lot of ways, the trajectory and direction of their program under Jimbo Fisher. And of course, at least right now, Offensive coordinator Bobby Petrino. So both teams need this game badly. What am I looking for in this game that stands out? This is an easy one. The line of scrimmage. I know that doesn't necessarily sound like any sort of earth shattering analysis, but Texas A&M has one of the best defensive fronts and one of the most talented defensive lines in college football. We talked about early on in the year Ole Miss struggling to get the running game going, particularly when they didn't have Caden Prescorn out there at tight end. But the Ole Miss offensive line has struggled to protect Jackson Dart and struggled to get the run game going at times this year. You saw it a little bit in the Alabama game. Ole Miss couldn't really move the football with any consistency. They ran the ball okay in spots. But ever since that game, it's been better. But also, at the same notion, 
they haven't really played any overbearingly awesome defensive front since. Yes, LSU has Harold Perkins and certainly some talent up front, but that defense as a whole has been a mess for most of the year and is largely the reason that LSU is mostly out of college football playoff contention. Arkansas thought played a pretty damn good game, particularly on the back end and the secondary against Ole Miss, but that's not a world beater of a defensive front. Auburn, kind of the same thing. Very good defense, but not any sort of world beating talent, particularly in the front seven. And then of course, Vanderbilt last week. So this will be the first time Ole Miss has faced a really fierce defensive front with a lot of front line and blue chip talent in several weeks. And I think this is ultimately where the game is won and lost because it is abundantly obvious that Ole Miss is a different offense and a different team when they're running the football well. Again, not any sort of earth shattering news in that regard, but their splits when they run for more than 150 yards a game versus less than 100 or 150 yards per game are pretty jarring. Seems to make sense, right? This Lane Kiffin offense is built off a dynamic and home run hitting type running game. And if Ole Miss is not able to generate anything in the running game and have consistent success, it is going to be a long day at the office for them on the offensive side of the football. Why? Well, it's going to put an increased amount of stress on a limited Jackson Dart, who very clearly seems to be not 100% healthy. I think Neil asked him after the Arkansas game what his health status was, and his answer was, I will be good, which is not exactly the same thing as saying I'm perfectly healthy. But you can tell over the last couple of games, he's not moved the same way that he moved earlier in the season. He seems a little bit more reluctant to run. He seems a little bit more flustered by pressure than he was early on in the season. It's very clear that he's ailing in some form. I know he got hurt early on in the Arkansas game and has been nursing some sort of injury since. So it's going to put a lot on the shoulders of Jackson Dart, who's seemingly limited mobility-wise, has not been great particularly over the middle of the field in middle to, uh, or excuse me, intermediate to deep throws. And we've kind of seen that play out already a couple of times this year. That's just not a path to success for Ole Miss trying to lean heavily on Jackson Dart to move the football up and down the field, throwing the ball, not even really a shot at Dart. But when you become that one dimensional, you're already a little bit shaky on the offensive line when it comes to pass blocking. No team's really going to be successful doing that as well. So Ole Miss being able to block this A&M defensive front that does a lot of very creative things to bottle up runs, not let it get to the second level, particularly with the linebackers and into the secondary is going to be very, very crucial for Ole Miss. You know, we talked about heading entering the LSU game. Uh, Ole Miss and this offense are going to need to play, you know, its best game in order to beat LSU. I think that's what Weldon and I said, or close to a perfect game. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but I, I kind of feel similarly about this game as well, but for totally different reasons. Against LSU, it was like, well, LSU is going to score points. This Ole Miss offense is going to have to keep up against a bad LSU defense. Whereas in this case, the Ole Miss offense is going to have to play one of its best game, particularly in the trenches and on the offensive line, for them to be able to win this game. Again, not any sort of groundbreaking news there. I think you probably knew that entering this week. But it's going to be particularly important, and how Ole Miss fares running the football, particularly early in the game, is going to be vastly important because AM forces a lot of three and outs. The Aggies are the are the ranked second in the SEC in total numbers of three and out force and three and out percentage. They lead the conference in opponents' yards per drive. So, how many yards does the opponent gain per drive against the Aggies this year? That's twenty two point two one yards per drive. That is first in the SEC. Opponent yards per play. They're right there around third, a little over five and a half yards per play. And they're also first in the SEC in opponents first downs allowed per drive. They average 1.12 first downs allowed per drive. That's ahead of Georgia at 1.17 for reference and Alabama's at 1.19. Ole Miss by comparison, ranks sixth in the SEC in this department at 1.31 first downs per drive. This is a style defense that can force your offense 
off the field very quickly and allow them to control the tempo and the pace at which the game is played, which is going to be another huge battle in this game. Ole Miss going to want to play a little bit faster. They're not as fast as they've done played in the past couple of years, but still they certainly want to play faster than Texas A&M has this year. A&M backup quarterback, Max Johnson recipes kind of been put him in advantageous situations uh, by getting positive yardage on first down, not getting behind the script, and not putting him in situations where he's going to have to drop back and pass because he throws holds on to the football too long and has been a little bit turnover prone. Johnson's thrown four picks over the course of the last four games, even though he was clean in terms of turnover-wise against South Carolina. He'd thrown three, four picks in three previous games, so he will turn the football over. So that's kind of the strategy. Tempo, pace is going to be a huge contrast in this game and is going to be a fascinating subplot to watch. How does Ole Miss continue to troll the control the pace and control the tempo of the game easy staying on the field not going three and out and generating consistent success running the football so from that standpoint the AM defensive front and the Ole Miss offensive line the three main things I'm looking for is Ole Miss's ability to run the football and their ability to protect Jackson Dart because those have been two areas of question at various points this year we mentioned the Dart health piece of it and if Ole Miss is able to stay on the field and not have a whole lot of three and outs I think they are eventually going to have a great deal of success in this game. Jumping off of that side of the football, the other side of the football, the line I think is going to be equally as important. We talked about after the Vanderbilt game, there wasn't a whole lot to take away from it, right? Inferior opponent where it fell on the schedule, just Ole Miss kind of sleeping, sleepwalking through the second half, understandably so. One thing that did stick out was the Ole Miss defensive line in this good stretch of football the Ole Miss defense has put together has really become a bit of a dominant force. Ole Miss, second in the SEC in sacks. Guess who's first? Texas A&M. This defensive line has really become a strong point for this Ole Miss defense. That's going to be wildly important in this game because they're facing a backup quarterback who has a tendency to hold on to the football too long, and in the last few games has been pretty turnover-prone when he does that. A&M, not an offense that is designed to play behind the sticks. There aren't very many offenses, period, designed to play behind the sticks, but particularly so with the Aggies. They have a talented receiving core, but Johnson not always able to find them with any sort of consistency. Decision-making has been a bit questionable. If Ole Miss consistently pressures Max Johnson and forces A&M to be one-dimensional running the football, they are going to have a hell of a chance to win this game because two things. I think one, they're going to be turnovers to be had for Johnson. And two, if they get behind the sticks, that is usually a recipe for the fact that they're going to be off the field after second and third down. So one thing I'm going to have a close eye on, particularly early on in the football game, is Ole Miss's ability to get to Max Johnson. And I'm curious if any AM does anything to counter in the short to intermediate passing game to get the football out of Johnson's hands quickly and not put him in a position where he has to go through multiple reads and make sound decisions, because again, that has not always been the case. Been a bit of an up and down season in terms of A&M's running game, but I think it really tells the tale of their success as a team. In their five wins, they have run for 134 yards, 158 against ULM, 209 against Auburn, 204 against Arkansas, and 105 against South Carolina. In their three losses, run for 97 against Miami. 67 against Alabama, and just 54 against Tennessee. If you stop the run, they're a fairly toothless offense. Ole Miss, a lot about 135 yards per game uh, to opponents rushing the football this year. I think it's right around 145 in SEC play, so not a terrible mark, but a pretty middle-of-the-pack mark, and that's going to be a huge key in this game. If Ole Miss can shut down A&M's running game and really put the game in the hands of Max Johnson, I don't think he's capable of winning it. And then lastly, one last thing I've thought about as we enter this game is the benefit of the doubt. I uh, guess what do I mean by that? Well, Ole Miss is favored by three in this game. They should win it. 
But could they easily lose it? Of course. It's a field goal line. It has not moved at all. I've seen there's a bunch of public money on Ole Miss, which is always a scary thought um, in terms of Vegas because uh, those places out there in the desert were not built on losses. But what do I mean by the benefit of the doubt? This is a game Ole Miss should win. It's a game they certainly can win. But then you get to the ultimate question, will they? Well, Ole Miss is going back to November of 2020, 19-2 in its last 21 home games. That's one hell of a mark that not many programs anywhere in the country can say the same. Not a whole lot of programs that have gone 19-2 and in their last 21 home contests. And so what does the benefit of the doubt mean? Kind of getting to the point where Ole Miss just kind of wins these games at home. These toss-up coin flip games that you think they could win, probably should win, but somewhere in that, you know, three to seven point line range. Ole Miss has just kind of become a team that wins these games. And I don't know what how big the sample size needs to be before you do give Ole Miss the proverbial benefit of doubt and you say, hey, uh, field goal game, it's an Oxford, Ole Miss probably wins it. I think I'm there because in the Lane Kiffin era, they win games like this inside Vaught-Hemingway Stadium from the environment to the atmosphere and everything that Lane Kiffin has done to improve Ole Miss's play at home is very, very impressive. And I think I'm kind of the point now where, you know, it's a weird matchup for Ole Miss against Texas A&M. You're right. It's it's the things that Texas A&M does well and the things that they stop well on defense are not things that Ole Miss has done well at certain points this year. So it's a weird matchup. I would call it a bad matchup for Ole Miss. It's a very talented A&M team. You know, if you went talent by talent at positions, I think A&M would win that going away. But Ole Miss is a better overall football team than Texas A&M. And so as we reach this point, and if Ole Miss is able to win this game and go 20-2 and two in its last two home games, that's one, wildly impressive, and two, something that everyone is seemingly just starting to expect them to do because of the amount of consistent success they've had at home. So credit to Lane Kiffin, credit to their staff, and credit to everyone involved with the Ole Miss program for that. So if they win on Saturday, it's certainly not going to be a surprise, but it's one of those things where I'm beginning to expect it because of how frequently it happens. So... Enjoy the game on Saturday. Just wanted to get some solo thoughts off my chest there before we head into CJ Johnson. So we're about to dive into CJ, but before we do, I wanted to take a quick break to remind you. This podcast is brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've ever had before. It's made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up on any occasion, especially when you're cheering on your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate your game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unforgettable game day experience. Twisted Tea, the drink that fuels and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg if you're Rippy Wright subscriber. That's rippywrights.substack.com. You get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now it's three six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. It's about a $40 evaluation you're getting there for $20. Just go in, show Greg proof of subscription, tell him you know about the Rippy Rights newsletter. He'll get you set up and then go find all of your own favorites. It's the greatest butcher shop in the world. Incredible cuts of meat. I love the fillet burgers. All kinds of delicious sausages. The tri-tip is incredible. It's truly a gem of Oxford and a gem of the South. Check them out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here's Ole Miss great CJ Johnson. All right, we now welcome on the Oxford Ortho Letterman's Lounge Athlete of the Week, Ole Miss great CJ Johnson. I appreciate you joining the show, man. You're joining before a game. Y'all got a big one tonight, so it looks like you're on the bus. I appreciate you joining the show. 
Yeah, no doubt, man. Yeah, we got a we got a game tonight at Southwest. It's our our last uh, game of the year, so trying That's to finish awesome. this thing off right. So let's just start from the beginning. When you're coming out of high school, you're a highly rated recruit. You're a Mississippi State commit. You decommit. You end up at Ole Miss. I know that was uh, there was a lot of fanfare and commentary surrounding that. Uh, some weird story about Facebook that was kind of overblown. Take me through the decision and why you ultimately ended up at Ole Miss. Um, so I mean, obviously there were there were a lot of factors that went into that. Um, one of the, I guess one of the main ones was that you know two of the guys that were recruiting me to go to Mississippi State, uh, had left within like a three day span, um, uh, and there were really not many a lot of coaches on the coaching staff that I had a good relationship with. Um, and so, ironically, that was right around the time that me, Tobias Harris, and Nick Brazel were all at the U.S. Army All-American game. And so that's really kind of how Ole Miss kind of got started, um, and then everything just kind of took place right after that. I got you. So I believe Manny Diaz was pretty heavily in on you as far as Mississippi State-wise. I think he left that year to go to Texas. Yeah. Did he try to get you to Texas at all? Did that you even consider that? Yeah, so my 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 original primary recruiter was Mark Cuthbert. Uh, okay, he was he was the wide receivers coach there, and he took a job, the head coaching job at Louisiana Lafayette. Um, and then I think it was like three or four days later, Manny was announced as the defense coordinator at Texas, and it just kind of after that didn't really have a lot of relationships and other coaches on staff. Those were the two guys that I talked to the most, and uh, just kind of made me a little uneasy. Um, that both of those guys had left within a couple of days and just made me reevaluate everything. For you, the time you were at Ole Miss, you saw the worst of the worst and the best of the best. You were really there from the beginning. I'm curious, you were, you know, state guy, commit, then you decided to come to Ole Miss. We just kind of covered that part of it. But was there any part of you after that 2011 season that kind of looked around and was like, did I make the right choice? What the hell is going on here? You know, because that was a tough one. Then the coaching staff changes. What was that first year like for you? Yeah, so um, originally there were probably a group of, I would say eight or nine guys. Um, we decided to get together, um, and we actually had a phone call with Coach Nutt. Uh, had a phone call with Coach Nutt, um, kind of after Coach Freeze got hired and all that. And I think it was like me, Dante Moncrief, Aaron Morris, Chief Brown. Uh, there were a lot of guys that were involved in in having this discussion. And Coach Nutt, um, to his credit, you know, told all of us. He said, "Look, you know, I know you guys, you know, don't like the way things have worked worked out." Um, he's like, but, you know, I'm sure they're going to hire somebody that's going to give you guys a chance to win. And uh, he was like, uh, you know, yeah, let's give him a shot in the spring. If you guys don't like it, give me a call back after the spring and we'll, you know, we'll help you guys transfer. And so obviously we go through the spring. Uh, everybody has a good time. And then, you know, everything else kind of transpired after that. That was your first run through college football. Is it tough going to practice each day when things are going that poorly? Because that was really one of the worst positions Ole Miss had been in as a program wise in some time. Was it tough going to, you know, quote unquote, work every day and trying to put everything in and get better when really nothing's going your way? Well, so to, to start, um, it was actually, you know, it wasn't that bad. You know, guys were working. We were trying to push through the, you know, the parts of the season and the tough parts and all that. Guys were working hard and pushing through. Um, but I think it really hit me like the day coach was fired. Um, I believe it was after the Kentucky game. Um, when they got fired, uh, we showed up to practice the week of La Tech, I believe it was. We played after that. And, like, we only had maybe 50, 60 scholarship guys in practice. Like, that's when it really set in. Like, man, this is you know, this is bad. Like, we're, we're not in a good place. And it was, it was hard um, those last three or four weeks of the season. 
being somebody that's always been a winner, uh, came from high school. I lost nine games in high school. And to go two and ten our first year there and just kind of see the way the rest of that season played out, it was it was really tough. What was your first impression of uh, Coach Freeze and that staff coming in? What was kind of that process like? You mentioned having a good time in spring. Were you reassured pretty quickly that this was still the place you wanted to be? Um, well, I think it wasn't so much of a freeze. I mean, he obviously had a little bit to do with it, but I think it was more so just the, the defensive coaches, you know, that he hired. Um, you know, I had a lot of confidence in Coach Walmack. You know, he kind of, you know, made us buy in from the get-go. And, and then obviously having a defensive line coach like Chris Kiffin that had been a bunch of places and being the sign of Monty Kiffin and, you know, all those things and being around, you know, the great Buccaneers teams with guys like Simeon Rice and Warren Sapp and Booger McFarlane and all those guys just really kind of instilled a lot of confidence in us um, that, you know, they were going to get us to where we ultimately needed to go. That first year under Freeze in 2012 is still one of the most impressive team coaching jobs, whatever you want to call it, I've seen in a while. You guys no doubt. seven games. No one really expected anything of y'all. I mean, hell, y'all were a couple of plays away from like winning nine games. What was that you know, first year like under him? Y'all didn't have any expectations, and it turned out to be a hell of a year. Obviously, that 2012 Egg Bowl was a pretty seminal moment for recruiting and all of that. What was that first year like, and when did you guys kind of realize, hey, we're actually we're a pretty good football team here? Um, I, I would probably say, um, you know, after we beat Auburn and kind of got off the schneid with the, I think it was like 18 or 19 um, consecutive losses in the SEC. And we kind of got, got our first SEC win. And I think that really kind of built the momentum, um, you know, to help us kind of get, get through the rest of that year. But, you know, that, that 2012 team, I still say was probably one of the worst teams that we had during that, during that time period there. But, there were so many great memories from that team and all the things that we accomplished. And they really set the stage for, you know, what was to come, you know, the last two years. And, and really, you got to give credit to those guys for not only the uh, the way they played, but their leadership. Like you think about guys like, uh, you know, Jason Jones and uh, E.J. Epperson, and, you know, uh, Charles Sawyer. You know, those are the guys like that, that really laid the foundation for, you know, young guys like us to, want to continue to to try to build something special there. That pregame speech before the Egg Bowl where Freeze is talking about 60 for 60 more and owing it to the seniors yep. and all that, that ended up being a pretty you know, famous speech from just a future and recruiting standpoint, but also set the tone for that night. I Did pregame speeches ever affect you as a player? Was that one any different? Did you feel like you wanted to run through a wall yeah. after? What was it like listening to that? Um, no, not really. I, I'm not – I'm not really – wasn't necessarily really the – pregame speech kind of guy. I mean, there's there were some good ones uh, that I that I remember. Um, but just, you know, I I think majority of us were so motivated to play. Um, I don't think pregame speech is really, really slayed anybody one way or another just because we were all so excited to go out and play for one another. Um and that's what that's what made that team so special. Did you know in the moment, so it's always funny in that speech where he's talking about getting a little help and getting the guy from Ohio and Illinois. Yeah. And yeah. And some of those recruits in the back room. Did you know yeah. in the moment kind of what he was doing there? Oh, well, yeah, kind of. Um, Because I, I, I want to say Robert was there for an unofficial that day. Um, And there were a couple other guys. I think Tony Connor was there too on an unofficial. And so it was kind of one of those deals where like we kind of knew what he was hitting at. Uh, you know, especially some of the guys that were like main players on that team, uh, having to play, you know, 90, 80 to 70 to 90 percent of the snaps every ball game in the SEC is really hard. 
um, and it really, really tough on your body. And so knowing that you got, you know, teammates that can step up and, and play just as well as you can, it, it gives you a, a lot of confidence for sure. You were a blue chip recruit. You're the top player in the state of Mississippi. You're one of the top players in the country. For you, when recruiting starts going well after that first freeze season and that kind of famous class comes in, what was it like for you seeing that influx of talent on the defensive side of the football and building all the way up to 2014? When did you kind of realize, okay, we got some dudes here. This could be a pretty special group. Um, I think really that was a, a combination of, you know, a lot of things. I think, you know, 2013. So for me, you know, I missed um, really that entire season. Um, I broke my ankle the first day of spring ball that year um, and fought really hard to, to play those first three ball games. Um, and it was one of those deals to where, like, man, I, I vividly remember the LSU game in 13 was probably one of my one of my favorite wins of all time in my careers that we had. I think we had nine to 12 starters out on both sides of the ball. Um, and to have so many guys step up, I think that really – uh, that really stamped that moment that he was talking about in that locker room in 2012, like the help that we needed, you know, having those young guys like Tony and Robert and all those guys being able to step up when there were so many older guys um, out, you know, throughout that, that year, um, I think really helped us a lot going into 2014. And that's what really set the stage for, for all of that. I mean, we were really talented and we knew we were really talented. Um, and I think our coaching staff did a good job of, of uh, of instilling that in us and, and just giving us the confidence to go out there and play like it. How much fun was it playing on that 2014 defense? From a watching standpoint, that's the most fun defense I've ever watched. You guys flew around. Y'all wrecked some folks. What was uh, – how much fun was it playing football that 2014 year? Oh, it was, it was – the most fun I've I've had in my, in my life playing football that year was just special. Just knowing going into a ball game um, – that it was going to be really hard for somebody to score on us was just, it was great, you know, and and we knew that we had a really good defense and we knew we were really talented. And I think the, the, the greatest part about that defense was that like, I don't think there was one guy that stepped on that field all year that didn't want to go out there and like physically destroy every single person that lined up in front of them. Um, And I think that's what made, you know, that defense unique from our 2015 defense was that, you know, we had a lot of warriors and killers on that on that 14 defense, man. 2014 Alabama, clearly one of the biggest days in Ole Miss's program history. What do you remember about that day? And what was the confidence level like? Because we'll get to the 15 game in a second, but that was kind of like, okay, can they finally reach the mountaintop and kind of get in that rarefied air in contention for the West? How confident were you guys going into that game? Um, well, we were very confident. Um, and I and I kind of credit Paul Jackson for it. I don't know if it was a <laughs> if it was a lie or if it was actually the truth. Um, but in 2012 and 13, you know, we played both of those games over in Tuscaloosa. So we play them in 12 and then we have the schedule flip and then we have to go back over there in 13. I felt like in 12, uh, um, you know, that was the game where we start the game out really, really well on defense and we get three trips down in the red zone. We wind up only getting a field goal out of it, right? We turn it over on on fourth down twice, and then the third time we wound up kicking the field goal in that game, and I think they wound up beating us like 26 to three um, or something like that. That game really gave us a lot of confidence, um, especially the the guys that were on that team. Like, man, like that was one of the moments I think we all realized, like, hey, Alabama not is as mighty as people say they are. Um, and if you just come out and play really well and not beat yourself, you'll have a chance. And then we come back in 2013 after the game is over, I'll never forget, Paul Jackson talking to the team that Sunday and 
a lot of people don't really understand that 13 game. So the 13 game was really interesting as well because that was a year that uh, Tyler Siski was hired yeah. right, at Alabama. And there's obviously, you know, clips and whatnot of him in the press box with binoculars and all that, which we won't, we won't get into all the specifics of all that. Um, but if you go back and watch that game, every time we ran the ball, they were in a one-high defense, which is better against the run. And every time we threw the ball, they were in a two-high defense, which is better against the pass. And so offensively, they kind of had our number, but defensively, we literally hit them in the mouth the entire game. Um, it was a very, very physical game. I think they only wound up scoring like two touchdowns and maybe kicked like five or six field goals or something like that in that game in 13. And so that's what really kind of set the stage for that that 14 game and uh, the confidence that we had. Is, you know, we hit them in the mouth two years in a row, and we felt very confident that we could go out there and do the same thing again if we could – you know, score some points on offense because they've always been really good on defense. So it sounds like it didn't take y'all long to realize after that 13 game that they had just signs. Y'all knew pretty good. Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, and I think Coach even, you know, got on the bus after the game was over. I don't know what he said on the offensive bus, but I know the defensive bus. Coach Freeze kind of referenced something like that and uh, just about, you know, him. You know, he kind of felt like he lost the game for us and didn't really give us a chance and whatnot. But uh, we, we, were, we were pretty, you know, smart football players. We were very – we we knew what was going on. <laughs> did y'all know? Uh, did y'all know pre-replay that Sinquez had caught it? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, when we were standing out on the field, uh, I remember him when he got over the sideline. He was like, "I caught that ball," and uh, you know, obviously when they showed it on the jumbotron and you saw his foot hit the ground, you were just like, "It was amazing." And then what's really amazing about all that, and I don't even know. I think I've seen the picture go around the internet a couple of times, but. <laughs> What a great, you know, moment um, in Ole Miss history. I think uh, the score at the time, uh, I can't remember his exact score, but he caught the interception with 38 seconds left on the clock. Yeah. Um, which was very, I mean, like, man, like you talk about signifying an Ole Miss victory and having 38 seconds left on the clock. We called it Chucky time on the sideline. It, uh, it, it was a great day for sure. It was twenty three seventeen because y'all you guys had scored to That's go right. ahead, but Wonderlick, who ended up being automatic in his career, misses the extra point. So Alabama That's dropping right. back down the field. That's what I was going to yeah. ask you next. When you have Blake Sims like fling one to the end zone that late in a game, is there a moment when you're on the field like, oh shit, like what happened here? Because I remember like fans' heart was sinking every single time they threw yeah. him in the end zone. You're just praying yes. the second melt off. Yeah, so I'm on the field, and uh, I'll never, I'll never forget this. This is after. Amari Cooper catches the long pass like two plays before the interception. You go back and watch the game. After they get the long pass, I'm not even hurt, but I fall down to get a timeout, right? Because yeah. I knew coach wasn't going to call a timeout. So me being the, you know, the the big brain that I was out on the field, I was like, they're moving the ball pretty fast. I think they had like two or three plays and they had moved the ball like 450 yards. And I was like, man, this is a good opportunity for me to fall down right here and act like I'm hurt so that we can get a timeout and kind of regroup ourselves on defense. And, and then, lo and behold, two plays later, we, we get the interception, which is that awesome. 2015 year, they move you to middle linebacker, which is yep. one hell of a position switch. What was that like for your last year going in, and all of a sudden you're kind of the quarterback of the defense at a totally different position? What was that transition like for you? Well, I had always been a guy that was, you know, wanted to learn the defense and kind of know what everybody was doing, being a, a linebacker guy in high school. Um, it was just something that, I always, you know, wanted to do when I played defensive line and, like, help set the front and do all those kind of different things. 
And uh, they came to me uh, a couple weeks before spring ball. I was like, hey, we're thinking about doing this. And in my mind, you know, I was thinking that, you know, maybe if I can show that I'm able to play, you know, inside linebacker as well as, you know, be a guy that can rush the passer and increase my odds of, of having an opportunity to play in the NFL. And, uh, you know, that was really the – that was really the, the motivation behind that. Uh, that was really the, the motivation behind all that. And, uh, you know, it was uh, – it was a good deal to to see that happen and to, to have a chance to, uh, you know, play in the NFL because I knew, you know, 235 pounds is kind of hard to play defensive end in the NFL. What, what was the toughest part about it? Like, were you having to learn more about calls and all of that? What was the toughest piece part of the transition? Um, I think the really the toughest part of it was the coverage aspect of it. Um, okay. it just, you know, uh, just covering receivers uh, for the first time since really high school um, and tight ends and stuff like that. And Evan Ingram did a good job of, of helping me and, and preparing me and get, get me ready for all that stuff because um, he was such a good pass catcher as a tight end. So just the, the coverage part of it was, you know, took a little bit of getting used to for sure. We'll finish up with CJ in just one second. But before we do, I wanted to take one more quick break to remind you. This podcast is now brought to you by MC Speech Therapy. Has your child been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder or another developmental disorder? MC Speech Therapy offers private speech therapy from the comfort of your own home. Other centers may leave you as the parent sitting in the waiting room. MC Speech Therapy enables parents to make every moment with their child therapeutic. Using a relationship-based framework, MC Speech Therapy can help your child engage, relate, and communicate. Mary Claire Boudreaux's doctorate-level expertise and passion in helping children with communication difficulties offers articulation and language therapy, parent training, and is licensed to do virtual therapy across the state of Mississippi. With MC Speech Therapy, you and your family will gain a better understanding of your child while cultivating stronger relationships. For service today, call 903-824-8575 or email her at maryclaire at mcspeechtherapy.net. That is M-A-R-Y-C-L-A-I-R-E at mcspeechtherapy.net. All right, back to CJ. That 15 Alabama game, I'm a junior in college. I'm walking in as a student, and I'd never forget walking into Bryant-Denny thinking Ole Miss is going to kick Alabama's ass at the height of the Saban era. It was a very different mentality that year, at least from a student fan base perspective. Did y'all share the same feeling and sentiment? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, we knew, I mean, we felt like – like we honestly felt like, you know, we were going to go in there and, like, blow them out. Um, that was our that was our mindset um, going into that game, and, and that's really how we felt from real start to finish. Were y'all confused when they started Cooper Bateman? Because I remember when I saw him walk out there, I was like, what the hell are they doing? So, no, actually, um, they had kind of talked about it, um, you know, because they were really unsure if Jay Coker was really the guy. Um, and I believe that year they had played uh, West Virginia um, in the opener. Um, and it just didn't look very good. Um, and we kind of felt like uh, with Coach Kiffin, you know, Chris being a, a brother of Lane and, you know, talking about, you know, some of the things that he had heard and all that. He's like, you know, we kind of think they're going to start a different quarterback, in which we felt – we really felt good about it because we felt like no, no matter who they had a quarterback, we didn't feel like they had anybody that was going to be a difference maker. Um, and we knew that if we could stop them from running the football, we'd have a chance. What made you want to get into coaching? Um, I mean, there's obviously, you know, a lot of things. Um, I lost my dad when I was 13 years old, and, um, you know, I would not have – been as successful in life, you know, had there not been a bunch of coaches um, through sports to, you know, help me get through, you know, one of the most difficult times in my life. Um, I was raised by, you know, raised by one of my high school coaches. Um, I'd probably say all of my high school coaches um, did a great job in, in helping mold me and, 
you know, turned me into the person that I am today. And my dad was always my coach. Um, you know, he taught me how to hit a baseball, taught me how to throw a curveball, taught me how to throw a football, um, taught me how to tackle, you know, all that good stuff. So all the memories that I had around sports um, really revolved around my dad being my coach. Um, and that was one of the things that um, I felt like I wanted to do. Um, so I kind of honor him a little bit is to kind of help other people the way he did. My dad also started – um, youth football league in Philadelphia in 2005, uh, the year before he passed. And, um, you know, obviously the league hasn't played in two years now. But, you know, just to show the impact that he had on a bunch of kids in our community, um, for the league to be able to continue on almost 16 years after he passed is pretty, pretty remarkable. That is remarkable. You were on Kiffin's staff at FAU. Um, so you kind of yes. got a prelude to what everyone at, you know, Ole Miss wise is experiencing now. What was it like working for Kiffin? And when they made the hire and he comes to Ole Miss, were you pretty sure it was going to be a success? Well, it's funny because all the stuff went down over the summer. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I remember him, I remember him teasing me uh, while I was there. It's like, he comes in the office one day, he goes back to back, guys. He's like, we're going to Oxford. And uh, Chris kind of looked at him. He's like, you're joking. And uh, he's like, no, it's like, uh, He's like, they call me. He's like, but I don't think they're going to. He's like, I don't think they're going to do it. And so it, it, it was funny, you know, seeing him hired um, a couple of years later and me thinking about that moment um, and that time. It's just it's just wild. But he's he's a great football coach. Um, I think uh, his time at Alabama really changed him as a coach um, and really gave him uh, more of a uh, more of a defined purpose as to why he coaches. Um, and I think that was one of the things that he uh, reiterated a lot to our players at FAU is that, you know, he felt like everywhere he had been, it was always about him. Um, and he wanted the players to really know and understand that everything was about them. And I think he's trying to do a really good job of that old, at Ole Miss. Obviously, you know, Ole Miss is a lot bigger place than FAU. So the uh, the attention, so to speak, is kind of on him um, a little bit more than it would be if we're at FAU, but I still think uh, by watching them play that it's a it's a player-driven team. Well, how would you describe someone that didn't know anything about it, like what he's like offensive mind-wise? Because, like, you hear stories and stuff like that, but just how tactically sharp he is from a schematic standpoint. Yeah, he's he's probably one of the one of the smartest offense coaches I've ever been around. Um, and, you know, not really having a lot of opportunities to talk ball with him, but to, to sit in some of those meetings and – and listen to him talk ball and how he sees football from an offensive perspective. Um, it's very unique. Um, and I think his experiences as a coach um, has really shaped him to have all of those um, ideas and experiences. Um, and I think he does a good job of, of seeing, you know, what his team needs in that, in that moment in time to, to really be successful. Like you think about, you know, FAU in 2017, we start that year off with two of our best receivers suspended for four games. Um, and we go into that year not knowing that Devin Singletary would ultimately be, you know, what he would become. Um, but we relied heavily on the run game because we were, didn't really have a lot of receivers, and he winds up running for the most yards, of, you know, over a one-year span in you know, college football history. So it's pretty remarkable to watch him work um, and to see the things that he do um, and how he motivates the guys. It's, it's, really a, it's really a unique experience for sure. As we wrap up here, just a couple quick ones for you. Toughest quarterback you ever faced? Oof. Johnny Manziel, for sure. That is, I forgot that you faced Manziel. That's got to be yeah. an easy one. That's got to be different. Than yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he, was a, he was a different dude, man. And, you know, I, I don't – I still tell people all the time, I don't think he would not have been as special if he did if he wasn't throwing the ball to a Mike Evans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know if people remember in 2012, but we, we had a chance to win that ball game. It's third and 27. And he throws a jump ball up to Mike Evans and he jumps over Sinclair's is in great position to catch the ball. But Sinclair's is 5'9, five, 5'10, five, but Mike Evans is 6'5. So I do remember that vividly. That was a heartbreaker for yeah. sure. Toughest ball carry you ever had to tackle. Todd Gurley, without a doubt. Really? By far. Todd Gurley was the only guy I ever played in college where about midway through the third or fourth quarter, I was really questioning if I wanted to continue to tackle him. Okay. He is a he was a massive human being. I mean massive. That's unbelievable. So even tougher than uh Derrick Henry. Oh, wait, without a doubt. And Leonard Fournette. Um, I always thought that Fournette and Henry, they ran really high. Yeah. Um, Todd Gurley did not run high at all to be 220 pounds. Interesting. That's uh yeah, he was he was really damn good in college, had a great pro career too. Last thing for yeah. you, I know coaching probably makes it tougher to get back to games a lot, but you're getting honored this weekend. What do you think it'll kind of be like to take a trip down memory lane and you know be in the same stadium again that you won a ton of football games at? Oh uh, man, I'm excited. Um, you know, this will be my second game, I believe, since I played. Okay. Um I was I was able to come to the Memphis game in twenty sixteen, I believe. Yeah. I was there for that game. Uh, that's really the only game that, I, that I've been to since I, I was done playing. So I'm excited to get back to Oxford and, and you know, get back in, in the vault and see y'all, see some good old Miss football. Absolutely. You provided a great, a lot of great memories in your career, and I hope you enjoyed the day Saturday. I know you got to run. Best of luck in the game tonight. I really appreciate you doing this, and uh, I had a lot of fun. All right, man. Thank you so much, and uh, I'm excited to come to Oxford and can't wait to see the Rams win. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. Appreciate CJ's time. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Really sharp guy. Wishing him the best and really appreciate him joining the show. We'll be back with Weldon on Sunday. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for listening to this podcast as always. We'll catch you on Sunday.